Hey there, listeners. How's it going? It's Greg. I know we said we weren't going to be back with an episode, and really, we're not. This is uh, just a bit of a a special episode for you. We've got uh, some filler with a little bit of thriller with a collection of interviews to to tide you over until Jono, myself, and the rest of the gang all come back to entertain you. So these are a couple of interviews that Eva did for us back at Ludo Narcon 2021 with a couple of developers from some games that we... Uh, Well, one we for sure cover, and the other one uh, might fall into our coverage. It's a management sim, so that might uh, have some crossover, which we'll get into that. Either way, uh, I want to apologize in advance. The quality is a bit rough. Eva did her best, and Jono did his best to clean things up, but um, just bear with that, and we apologize in advance. You know, cons are busy and all that sort of stuff, and the the digital cons are even more challenging to kind of manage over uh, online communication. So our first interview is from Eva Padilla with Eve Golden Woods, who is a developer that works with Dreamfield, who gave us the visual novel If Found. If you'll recall, Alana Heggs reviewed If Found for us back in 2020 in June, came to us from Annapurna Interactive, who are uh, quite good at picking some pretty top shelf visual novels and adventures, and overall she was pretty happy with the game. The second interview is with Fernando Mello, who is the founder of Double Blitz Studios, and they're working on an upcoming management sim, Game Director Studio, which uh, my only experience with stuff like that was the the Kairosoft one, Game Developer Story, so I'm hoping this one will be a lot more uh, in-depth and thorough than that game was. And yeah, there might be some crossover elements if it has a more involved story, and we're waiting to kind of see where it goes from there. So it might fall into our cover, might not, we're not sure just yet, but either way, we had a great talk with them. So enjoy both those interviews, and to Eva Padilla, thank you so much for taking the time to make them. I'm hoping that we'll be able to get more of this stuff done in the future, either uh, you know at other conventions we get to, or even for our YouTube, whatever. That being said, uh, enjoy this impromptu episode of Random Encounter. So I'm sitting here with Eve Goldenwoods, a developer at Dreamfill and the co-writer of If Found. Eve, thanks so much for talking with me today. Thank you for having me. So first off, congrats on all the acclaim that If Found has been receiving. Multiple nominations and awards, end of year lists, and uh, a pretty warm reception from the queer community at large, at least how I've seen it. How do you look back on the release and reception of the game as we're approaching its first anniversary of release? Yeah, I mean, it's like, it's been really genuinely wonderful. I think, uh, you know, it was our first game with a kind of big publisher and um, it was just so exciting to to see people receive it well and to see people um, like playing it and enjoying it and finding connection with it. I remember like just after it launched, uh, all of us on on the dev team watching like streams of people playing the game and like getting emotional and all of us getting really emotional because the players were getting emotional. So that was like really fun. Yeah, it's um it's one of those things like like the awards are nice, the end of your list are nice. Uh, 
some people that I hugely admire have liked the game, which is kind of terrifying and also like really exciting. But the main thing to me is that like um, people who are queer and trans have found connection with the game and have found that like, even if they're not from Ireland, there are things that resonate and there are things that they can connect to. And that makes it um, really special for me. I think, um, you know, as an American who played it, I found a lot of things to connect with um, in the game. But you're correct in that there's a lot of things that make this game very Irish. There's, you know, there are usually Irish colloquialisms that are used. And then there'll be little boxes that say, this is what this is. This is what a crake is and, and things of that nature. How important was it for the game to have that sort of nature to it, to be both universal and also kind of highly localized in some way? Um, yeah, I I really vividly remember actually the specific conversation that I had with Laura, who is uh, my co-writer and the game's director, and she's also the head of the studio, uh, where we had a conversation that was just like, I really want to make this game Irish and yes, let's do it. Like, let's make it as Irish as possible. And that then led into this whole conversation about the annotations and about like, how do we keep it accessible if we make it really Irish? And then that ended up with us putting a lot of work on Tim, our programmer's shoulders being like, hey Tim, you need to make annotations for the game. But it was great. And and I think that there's something very profound about specificity, right? Like. The example that I tend to go to, because it's one that people are very familiar with, is Night in the Woods, which is like deeply saturated in kind of uh, Pennsylvania and like Rust Belt America. And it has like all of these really specific identifications, but that doesn't make it alienating or anything. In fact, it gives you this really rich feeling of being drawn into a world. And that was something that I really wanted to try and achieve with If Band is like um, connecting to my own experiences and for Laura, connecting to her experiences of growing up. Both of us grew up in the west of Ireland, although Laura closer to Ackle than I did. And so, yeah, it was it was really nice to be able to put those like incredibly precise details into the game. Absolutely. And I think uh, you accomplished that really well as you bring up Night in the Woods. I think both of those really do have this these very um, specific and fleshed out characters that are wholly themselves, but you can find so much universality with them. So... Growing up, I think we're, as we see more in the indie space now, we have more games that are centered around queer characters and touch on queer themes. But, you know, this is a bit different than perhaps how we saw things when we were growing up or the media that we had. So how do you see kind of the the media landscape as well as the just environment for queer people in Ireland when this game was set in 1993 or later mm-hmm. as it is to today yeah so it, it's 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 wildly different and has has changed like massively in the last 30 years uh growing up for me like this is this varies um partially this is just kind of the the family that i grew up in and stuff but i had extremely limited access to like tv and internet <laughs> um before i went to college uh we had the kind of national tv stations of ireland there are four of those they're okay um and uh we had dial-up internet from like when i was quite young but dial-up internet was very slow so it was like functionally nothing and i remember like getting to college and getting access to broadband internet for the first time and just like suddenly tunneling into like every single piece of queer media that i could find like uh, like fan fiction like anime and manga and and then also kind of 
uh, starting to connect with, um, you know, like like Western literature that was also about queer people and and then games. And even from then, like that would have been 2007. And from there to now, it feels like just a completely different landscape. And there's so much more that is accessible. And, and <laughs> watching my sisters grow up, my sisters are both teenagers. They have access to just this completely different landscape of, of queer media. And it's really wonderful. Like they have this potential to express themselves from a very young age that I did not have. And uh, that makes me really happy. Like, which isn't to say like things aren't perfect. Ireland isn't perfect. Things have changed a lot. We have we have marriage equality now. And um, broadly speaking, like things are a lot better for LGBT people than they used to be. But uh, there is still a ton of work that has to be done. And, you know, a lot of it is very material, like um, trans people in Ireland still need better and more consistent access to healthcare, right? Like the material needs of LGBT people still really do need to be addressed. But media-wise, I'm very happy to like see this, this explosion and especially um, like that it's non-corporate. There's a lot of indie stuff that you can find out there. <laughs> I, I'm incredibly lucky to have a lot of friends who are queer creators of media and it's deeply nourishing to to read or to play stuff that is by other queer people um, who are making it on their own terms and like with their own agenda and not having to follow like very strict corporate policy. I've done that kind of work as well. And it's sometimes you feel like you're making a difference within a larger, um, you know, structure, but it's it's much more frustrating. And um, it's something that Dreamfield does very well because we're a small team and we're uh, queer led and most of the people on the team are also queer. So we get to really define for ourselves. And that is super wonderful. I can imagine that, you know, working for a you know a corporation or a larger company, the you know the breadth of you know what your work can touch is might be greater. But in terms of the scope, I imagine it's quite limited because of you know certain moneyed interests and everything, and how that all works. Um, and I completely agree with you. We you know things are a lot better for queer and trans people here in the United States in a lot of areas than they used to be, but there's still so much work to be done in terms of ending epidemics of uh, trans violence, especially against people of color here. And, you know, that work continues and is one that we've had for a long time, um, but um, we can begin to see progress. We can get, begin to see real power in our communities, I think. Um, yeah. So as kind of the co-writer for the game, having seen a lot of these queer characters and such as you entered college and it being like tunneled in, you were able to write a lot of parts for these characters. Uh, mm -hmm. What were some of your favorite characters or most powerful moments that you crafted for the story? Mm. So it's super interesting. Um, I think Maggie ends up being one of my favorite characters in terms of um, establishing like uh, a sense of history within the game and like bringing forward like an older LGBT person giving like making it clear within the context of the game itself that like um, this is not a new phenomenon that there have like we have always been here we have always existed we have existed in different contexts but found ways to make that work always and the scene um, like where she and Cassio talk on the cliff is is one of my was one of my favorites to write and also then just like uh Leah brought her A game for the art so the art is like incredibly beautiful for that scene and um that makes me happy when I play it 
Yeah, it's interesting. Who else would be like my favorite characters? I end up really liking like Colm and Jack and their relationship. I think is is really interesting to me, partially because it doesn't work out, but they both like figure out things that they want to do. I I like that sense of like that it's it's a meaningful part of their lives and it continues to be I think even when you see the in the future epilogues and they've they've gone their different ways that the the context of their history remains profound like I think we all end up having relationships that don't work out but uh going through them is also just how you develop as a person so like I like that at least that was the tone I was hoping to hit was like that it, it was a good relationship while it lasted and it was important to both of them in terms of going into adulthood. I really like that. You know, a lot of the times when we see, we either see experiences in media, and I think especially in queer media sometimes, of relationships that that either work swimmingly and there's a happy ending, or it goes disastrously wrong. And to just have that complexity and nuance of just like, yeah, sometimes people just aren't gonna work out, but they go their separate ways and it goes well for them. I also loved seeing um, Anu's journey and how they grew to accept themselves and start a family of their own. Um, this is kind of another experience that we don't see enough in queer media of, um, or in media in general, of just a, a non-binary character who is able to start a family of their own, experience acceptance in their communities and such. And so seeing that in If Feel, alongside so many other beautiful queer narratives, it just adds to the to the splendor and the and the the affection that I have for it. Yeah, Anu's really special. Like, uh, we talk to people, you know, um, neither Laura nor I are non-binary, so we we reached out to people about that and uh, and also to um, a couple of, of Indian Irish people to get their perspective on Anu's kind of experiences and what that might be like. But uh, they're a great character. I love them very much. They're so confused for a lot of it Bloomed is the perfect word for them. Absolutely love it. I think another part of this game that is really important is kind of the, I suppose, the push and pull of agency in this and how the player interacts with it. There's this, the main mechanic of it is uh, centered on erasure. It's kind of the signature (laughs) mechanic of it. So was this sort of a, a chicken or the egg scenario where there was this mechanic and it was, oh, well, we'll make a narrative around this or was the narrative the first thing and the kind of mechanic followed? So technically the mechanic comes first. Uh, Laura developed it when she was Dreamfeel, but Dreamfeel was also a solo kind of project that, um, that she had created and, and brought into existence. She came up with this idea of like, using uh, layers and kind of cutting through one layer to reveal what was beneath. And then when she started working with Leah back in 2015, uh, Leah comes from the kind of comics and uh, zine side of of art and illustration. And they really wanted to make something that represented Leah's art. So they were thinking about kind of homemade art, like handmade um, DIY stuff. And uh, it clicked for Laura that she could use this mechanic of cutting away layers to look like erasure, right? Like if you have a thing on top and you make it disappear, then it looks like it's been erased. And so that kind of led to some of the the generative ideas around um, 
the black hole and the end of the world. Um, this is actually, Cassia wasn't trans until after I started on the project. Uh, and I started on the project in like 20, end of 2018. <laughs> and, but of course, also Cassia was always trans, just not explicitly, right? Like, like reading her story was, was, I think, always very, very beautifully about self-discovery and about figuring out who she was. But as we got more into it, um, one of the big shifts that happened in early 2019 was we decided definitively that we had been setting it on a kind of fictional Irish island, and we decided, no, we're going to move it to actually Apple. Uh, and once it got this kind of concrete real-world location and time period, then I think everything started to become more interestingly specific and more kind of detailed. And at that point, it was just clear that Cassio was trans and this was interesting and it was worth talking about and it was good and beautiful. And it started to connect into the stuff about the end of the world and into the sense of apocalypse. And, and the Erasing Mechanic became kind of really nicely metaphorical as it became both about like, like vulnerability and how easy it is to damage and destroy things, but also how it can be a chance to like to start fresh and to create something new and all of that like like meshed together really well. And then um and I'm still really happy with that final payoff on the mechanic where you change from the eraser to the pencil and you are able to like to start over. Um Laura had that also very clearly in mind right from the start, and I think it's just thematically such a good payoff for everything you've been doing. Absolutely. That moment was, you know, that moment was incredible. I, yeah. it was, it was a pretty, it was a pretty sublime moment. Um, <laughs> game. What we're kind of referring to is like right before the epilogue, the game ends with this open journal. And on one side, there's this sort of character creator and it lets you personalize Casio. And to the left is another page where it says, this book belongs to blank. Um, and the player is allowed to write and name it. Um, and at first I had written my own name in there with, you know, the newly introduced pencil mechanic. Um, but then I erased it and wrote Casio's instead. So when you play the game or when you've seen others play the game, what have you seen them do during this part? Or what do you do yourself? I tend to, I, I always write Casio or uh, <laughs> during the, the long uh, QA period, I started to just draw lines because it was like, okay, <laughs> move on. If it's working, it's fine. I don't care. But for me, yeah, I would always write Casio. It's super, I find it so interesting. Like a lot of players write their own names and a lot of players um, make themselves in the pick group, which I think is like, is a super interesting choice. Like that, even when you have this very defined and very specific character that the player still feels this slight bleed because they are they are directing it is so interesting. It's so cool that like they are they're caught up enough in in the act of playing to kind of have some sense of self in that. And that, that's also very exciting. Like I think I think it's really nice. I think it's really nice for people who maybe. I don't know, come away with some thoughts about gender and stuff. That's great. Whether they're cis or trans or, you know, they have these kind of distinct experiences, but um, but they bring something of themselves to it. Um, and that also in the character creator, you'll see people uh, making themselves and it is adorable. I love it. I'm so happy. <laughs> Uh, but I always just make Cassio because she's my precious child. Yeah, I, I think that was kind of how I was viewing it as well, is that 
there are moments where Cassio, I see Cassio as kind of a cipher where, you know, in mm. my own experience as a trans woman, it's like, oh gosh, yes, I feel this so entirely. And then there are some things that are more specific to Cassio the character. And so I think that makes that decision at the end of the game. There isn't like a, um, you know, th- there isn't like a whole lot of weight that's mm-hmm. in this decision in terms of like how the game progresses or something. Mm-hmm. But in terms of a mechanic for immersion and uh, having the player be emotionally invested, I think it's one of the best things I've seen. So I truly love that um, that there is that agency there. And it also brings a sense of like like play to the ending, which I think is very important as well because uh, <laughs> because like the, the climax of the game is so heavy and, and uh, you're going through so much and then it's nice to have that little like breath of fresh air to be like, okay, now I can like have fun. <laughs> so to kind of end with this there, um, I kind of picked this up from uh, Nicole Carpenter's excellent review of the game on Polygon where she ended with, so I erased because it was the only way to rebuild. What do you take from that analysis, both of the game and its mechanics and the idea in general? That is a great article. Uh, Nicole Carpenter's work is A+. Good job. (laughs) Um, And yeah, I think it's like, like one of the things that I would take from it is Cassio at the start of the game is caught up in a lot of relationships that aren't working very well, right? Uh, Her relationship with her mother, even her relationships with some of her friends are unstable and and there is a sense of like like yeah sometimes when you when you tear things down and when you destroy things it uh it gives you space to to redefine them right to say like this is what i actually want from this relationship this is this is what i need from you this is what you need from me and uh i kind of fittingly as well with the theme of apocalypse like cassio is experiencing a sort of like (laughs) like her end of the world. Um, and I think out of that then comes this idea of the new world, right? Like like the epilogues are a sort of uh, like an expansion of that. They present all of these different time periods and these different possibilities. And it's like, we didn't end up leaning into this as much as we could have maybe, but like that there are sort of multiple possible futures and they're all good <laughs> is something that we were thinking about. But yeah, I mean, um, even for like, for Ireland itself in the early 90s, I think the country was going through a bit of a, a deconstruction and a rebuild. There were a lot of like big cultural shifts happening for various reasons, uh, economic reasons, social reasons, but a lot of the destruction was profoundly necessary. There was, um, in the mid 20th century and up to the end of the 20th century in Ireland, there was this real idea of like silence and, <sighs> things that were not talked about. Um, I think this kind of the mother explicitly mentioned, Cassie's mother mentions this in the game where she's like, like, can't you just do this in private? <laughs> and it's like, uh, don't disrupt the community. Don't don't cause any trouble. Keep things quiet. Um, don't make waves. And it's like, no, actually sometimes you do. You do need to, to break things down and you do need to destroy them because that's how change happens and uh, change is necessary and, you know, um, essential. Absolutely. I think change is necessary and essential is something that we can 
I'll take to our experiences and something I try to keep my focus on at all times. <laughs> Same. <laughs> Eve, this has been wonderful. I love getting to sit down with you and talk about this fantastic game. So what might be next for you and for Dreamfield in the future? Lots of exciting things that I am uh, forbidden to talk about. Uh, <laughs> um, we have a current project that we're working on. It is very cool. It is very different to if and which I kind of uh, decided explicitly to do because we wanted to to make as much space for ourselves as a creative team as possible. Um, so it is still a game that has uh, queer and trans characters in it, but it is not um, about that. It is about kind of various other things. But we also have kind of future projects that are lining up slowly um, that I think probably will return to similar spaces. Honestly, if we ever make a game that doesn't have LGBT characters in it, I will be astonished. I think that is probably <laughs> not possible. But I am very excited, hopefully like, hopefully soon, although soon is, is in months at least, uh, we will be able to say something and, and I think it will be very cool and I hope everyone likes it. Well, I know I for one and many, 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 many others are really going to be looking forward to it. So Eve, thank you so much for taking the time today and all the best to you and Dreamfield in the future. Thank you so much. It was really lovely talking to you. I'm sitting here with Fernando Melo, uh, founder of Double Blitz Studios, who are behind the upcoming satirical management sim, Game Director Story. Fernando, thanks for having a talk with me over at Ludo Naricon 2021. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. So, Game Director Story is the first title from Double Blitz after its founding in the fall of 2019 by yourself and a core team of former AAA developers. Um, what events led to its founding? Uh, so I had spent, uh, I guess, the better, better part of about 25 years in AAA, uh, both in development and on the publishing side. Um, I was actually working, I'm uh, based in Edmonton, Canada, and I was here actually working at Bioware for the last 12 years before starting uh, Double Blit. And I was actually uh, leading as a producer, leading the next uh, Dragon Age. And then as we were coming up to one of the green light meetings, sort of like a, an approval gate uh, with uh, EA, which went well. And that's kind of like the marking of moving into um, uh, the rest of production. I started to kind of think about, you know, am I really on board for another like four or five years development? These are such big projects uh, that we tend to do. I also tend to stay on or I used to after the game shipped. So I would look after things like uh, DLCs and multiplayer and patches and what goes on like community events and all those kinds of things too. So most of my tenure on the AAA side would be, you know, five to seven years per game, uh, which is a long time. Uh, so I, I realized, you know, as I started to kind of think about those things, uh, my heart just wasn't in it to kind of go another round of that. Uh, and timing wise, that seemed to be the best time for where the team was at and to kind of make a, a break. And prior to that, I also had been thinking about moving back into indie in the sense of 
wanting to get a lot closer to the game. Uh, so obviously in AAA, you're working with really big teams, hundreds of people, uh, multiple locations. It's very hard to be as close to what's going on in the game uh, on a day-to-day basis. You can't, you can't be aware of everything that's going on. There's just so many things. And I kind of had missed that of being able to be hands-on, actually working in the engine, working in the game, and collaborating a lot closer with our developers. So that was a big turning point of wanting to go back to, to doing that sort of thing. The other part in 2019 was um, the Reboot Conference, which for anyone that's not familiar, they've been hosting that as a, an industry event uh, where they do uh, panels and talks and so forth, and it had been primarily in Europe. And then for the first year in 2019, they actually were bringing, uh, doing a North American version, uh, not too far away from us here in um, a place called Banff you know, a couple hours away, uh, driving distance. So it just all seemed like that was a great opportunity to connect with a lot of other developers that are local to us here and sort of see what's out there and, and um, what's happening. And it just sort of all came together to, to sort of create that impetus at the, at the end of, or I guess it was August of 2019 is when I left. And then sort of September, October is when the company was actually started. That's quite the, it's quite the career that you've kind of put up in AAA development and in game development overall. So as you said that you want to be a bit closer to the games that you're creating, what were your kind of daily responsibilities like as a producer? I know that you had mentioned that you worked on, um, your work on the next Dragon Age and you also worked on, um, the Mass Effect series and um, earlier Dragon Age titles as well. Were those roles consistent or had they kind of changed quite a bit over your uh, career with Bioware? Uh, A lot of it was consistent. Um, So actually the role of a producer tends to be, you know, a bit of a mixed bag depending on the company. Everyone does it slightly differently. But at least on, on my part, on the Bioware side, it was primarily looking after certain aspects of the game. Most of my time I spent looking at uh, online features and, and things like that. So even coming back to Dragon Age Origins, which was um, when I first joined Bioware, was to work on that, was primarily looking at there were actually a couple of online features that you could upload a screenshot and you could see like your story so far and things like that. Also worked on getting the end user tool set, which becoming available for players to use. And then it was working with various teams. So I actually started working with the animation cinematics team. Um, and going through that, and then eventually moving into other groups, whether that was technology teams or gameplay. With uh, Mass Effect Andromeda, which was the last title that I shipped uh, prior to working on the next Dragon Age, um, I was primarily looking after what was going on in uh, multiplayer and online. So all the multiplayer mode and everything that was related to that. And that included all disciplines uh, that were as part of that. And as well with past games was also looking at things like the uh, DLC expansions. And in the case of Dragon Age Origins, a full expansion pack as well that came out with it. So it can vary quite a bit. It can be everything from uh, working through various, um, working with different team members on what's going on, keeping up to date, uh, making various decisions on what is in or how things are going. And also it really depends on the, uh, the phase of development that you're in. Uh, with the next Dragon Age. I don't want to get too much into that. But, you know, it was a very early team. It was a very small team uh, as we were starting to work on the concept of what it was. So it was a lot more about bringing the team together, organizing them, starting to put together some early releases and uh, milestones that the team was working towards. 
and as um, a lot of the developers were also coming off of uh, Anthem, as that was uh, being wrapped up to go out um, to launch. So it was also kind of how do we integrate uh, those folks, uh, get them onboarded on the vision for what we want to make. Um, so there's a lot of like onboarding training and things like that to get folks into the right mindset of, you know, when you're trying to get 300 people to all work towards a singular kind of vision for what the thing is. A lot of it actually starts right at the beginning of just onboarding people on the team, walking them through what that concept is, what is different than perhaps previous games. In the case of Dragon Age, we had three past games, all of them very different from one another. Uh, Mass Effect, I think, was a lot easier because you kind of, if you've played or you've worked on a Mass Effect game, you kind of knew what to expect to, to some extent. Uh, Dragon Age, it was like, we could go in any direction uh, from the past game. So it's it a little bit more work in terms of what it was going to be about. What are some of the things that we're keeping? What are some things that we want to change? What are some of the aspirational pillars of the game that we want to go after? And then making sure that the teams are aligned on that. And sort of unsurprisingly, Game Director Story is kind of a response to this, this career that you've had and uh, the developers who you're working with on this game at Double Blit. One thing I noticed uh, very early on, on one of the first screens, the players immediately told, you may fail a lot. Game development is hard. <laughs> what was the thinking behind crafting player expectations so immediately with that statement? Yeah, uh, actually, that one we went through quite a bit. So you hear this a lot, uh, I think, if you, if you read or, or follow uh, game development in any way or other developers. You'll often hear developers talk about the fact that game development is hard. But the one thing that was, you know, that kind of struck me in particular is there wasn't a lot of experiences that actually dealt with that. A lot of anything that's kind of related to game development tends to be much more of the management sim aspect of it, where things are much more abstracted away. And it's about hiring enough people to do, you know, to complete the thing on time. And while that is, you know, there's a certain, there's definitely truth to that. Um, it's missing a lot of the the relationship aspect of what's involved in game development. It is it is a team of people. It is a team of creative people uh, that are trying to work together. And then the other part too is the way that the game is structured. In particular, for the demo, we're trying to sort of throw the player into the deep end, as it were. Of you're already kind of like midway through the game. There's a bunch of stuff that you don't quite have context for. Uh, there's some really difficult decisions that are there. It is possible to fail out even in just a two-week in-game uh, time frame that you play. So we wanted to set that expectation early on that it's okay. Like a big part of this is actually the trial and error of seeing what works, what doesn't, what do you, what is important to you, and what do you care about. One of the big themes is that you will not have enough time to address everything. So purposely, you actually have to pick what are things that you're going to drop or not pay attention to. And there's a lot uh, to pick from. There's each of the team members has their own kind of story arc and things that they're dealing with. There's obviously what's going on in the game. There's different stakeholders that have different expectations that they set. And that come that may kind of potentially corner you into having to make some decisions here and there. So it's just kind of trying to set that expectation that we're not as hand-holding you as we might. Uh, certainly, like, for example, for the full game, at the start, and I think this is thematically also very correct with how at least big game development tends to work. At the start of a game production, uh, again, you're in the concept phase, 
And it's like, it's blue skies. Anything is possible. We have all the time in the world. We have all the people in the world that we're going to get, or, or we will. Like there's, we have these plans to hire all these great people and stuff. So it kind of started from this point where it's sort of like a high point in a lot of ways. And then as you go through development, reality starts to set in of like, oh, deadlines are becoming more serious, or we actually couldn't find the right people that we wanted or enough of them. And that's having these impacts. These things that we wanted to go and do, which was awesome, um, we're struggling to make it happen technically or whatever the case is. Or, you know, now that we got a chance to play it, we don't think it's actually the right direction after all. And we're going to pivot to a slightly different thing. So there's all those kinds of challenges that you have to run into. But in the full game, you will start from a kind of easier point. We definitely ease you in in the sense of like, okay, well, here's a few conversations for you to deal with every day. You largely get to go home on time. It's, you know, you don't have those kinds of pressures. Uh, once you get to this stage where you're in production, you've entered production, which is when the demo takes place, is in the uh, early production phase. Um, there are more deadlines. There's more of these kinds of pressures there. And even in the demo in the first couple of days, you tend to go home kind of, you know, five, six o'clock. After that, you start to stay a little bit later as well. So even then, there's this kind of thing of like, okay, you will have to start to make some decisions of where are those boundaries? And one of the themes as well is kind of like, a lot of times it's not, it's very hard to make these decisions when you're in the thick of it. If you can take a step back and look at things objectively, sometimes it's very easy to make a decision of like, no, this doesn't meet our values, our goals or, or whatnot. When you're in the middle of it and it's, it's very slow and incremental, it's actually very easy to kind of fall into these situations. Um, and that's largely what we're trying to show with the game as well, is that as a player, you start to care about the people, about the game, about what's going on. And of course, there's these demands starting to come up and you don't want to disappoint. And you start to get dragged into like, maybe I should work later or just a little bit longer just to get through these other things, et cetera. And of course, that will start to have an impact later on as well. Right. Even very early on in the game, there are decisions that you're asked to make that you can tell are going to impact things later on. Like the um, early on, they ask about the publisher representative comes in and asks about an E3 demo and the the representative wants uh, gameplay and they want you to put together a gameplay trailer in two weeks. And yeah. immediately it's like, absolutely not. How is how is that going to happen? We can do a teaser maybe, but, and you see that and you see the interactions between the characters and, oh, Phil and Molly, they're going to have some issues going down the road with their different methodologies and how they run teams and everything. I think it's already kind of setting up a, a space to demystify a bit of the, the game development cycle. Yeah. And at least that's the hope, right? Is right. to kind of bring players behind the curtain and show a little bit more of what goes on. I think when I look at a lot of, I've certainly lived through it and I look at a lot of articles like as an outsider looking at, you know, something that happens, a game releases and it has challenges or this situation that went on or whatever the case is. And I can kind of see, not knowing anything of what actually happened, there's enough parallels there that you're like, oh, I probably can suss out what happened there or most likely it was this kind of a thing as most developers probably can. But at the same time, I don't think that that's very clear to players because they don't have that context. And I think that's kind of creating this situation at times, which can actually be even quite toxic, where 
players have these kinds of expectations of like, well, why is the game, why does the game even have these bugs or anything? Like, how could you not find it? It's it's clearly broken, et cetera. And at the same time, it's like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure that they've seen it. It is impossible that they did not see that. It just means there were even bigger problems that they had to deal with. But without having that context of kind of living in those shoes and having to make some of those decisions, it's hard to kind of evaluate like just how much of a struggle that might have been for them, even just to get to that point. And I think that's something that we definitely want to try to get across with the game experience is to create that sort of uh, an empathy connection between what developers might be going through to better understand, okay, when this thing happened, I now, I get it. I've actually lived through something like that myself through the game. And I kind of understand a little bit of what happened there, even as much as like, yeah, as as a fan of game or franchise acts, I am upset by this. Uh, that's that's a fair emotion to have. But having that context, I think, is equally important to be able to have good conversations around why do these things happen? How do we prevent it from happening? Especially in that AAA space, there's only so much time to be able to address so many issues. Undoubtedly, one of the big issues that we've seen in the gaming landscape is the kind of specter of crunch, especially in the current pandemic age that we're still living through at time of this recording. Um, one thing I've really liked is that Double Blitz website mentions that the studio's aim is to develop games in a healthy, sustainable way. What are your thoughts on the shifting labor landscape in game development? And how have you related to it both as a AAA producer and an indie studio head? Yeah, it's actually, it is one of the tougher challenges. And I think it's not just exclusive to games. I mean, any industry can have it, but in particular, creative industries, I think, are always butting up into this kind of um, of pressure. Um, because, and I, again, without the context of having lived through some of that in some way, you know, as an outsider looking in, it's like, well, it's, it's obvious. It's like a, a clear black and white type of thing. Uh, this is bad. This is good. And unfortunately, it's it's actually very great. There's almost very little hard yes, no type aspect to it. There's always good reasons for it. And I think that's part of you have all these creative people going into this situation, wanting the best possible outcome and being really passionate about what they're doing. But at the same time, you also have things like uh, schedules that are not flexible or that are not possible to to move for lots of reasons. Uh, I don't think it's, I think it's naive to assume that it's always down to whoever planned the schedule. Like, again, there's a lot of outside pressures uh, that can happen, even with the example that you brought up of the publisher coming to you and saying, hey, this is, this is like, we were not planning for this, but here is an amazing opportunity that could make a world of difference for the success of the game. And indirectly, success of the game also translates to things like keeping the lights on and paying people at the end of the day. So you have to start to make some of these kinds of judgments around like, where, you know, how far is too far? What is reasonable? What is not reasonable? Where are you willing to compromise, if at all, on some of these things? And it is okay. Like, it is perfectly reasonable to also say, this is not something we're going to compromise on, uh, which you shouldn't. But it's also, you have to then be realistic with what does that mean? Uh, it's not a free pass either. Like that will have some consequences and you need to be able to think through and, and understand what those are and whether you can actually shoulder those things or not. So by far the biggest differences is that I think in the AAA space, you know, 
we talked about like large teams, et cetera, with really long uh, timeframes. These are trying to describe it as like, actually, even recently, we had this situation with the, uh, the tanker that was stuck in the Suez Canal. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's like trying to steer one of these massive ships. It is really slow to turn. It is really slow to gain momentum. Once it has momentum in a certain direction, it is very difficult to stop or reverse or change direction. And the larger the team and the larger the expectations, and as you get closer to launch, those also get bigger, the harder it is to make those kinds of adjustments. And that's just the reality of of things on the AAA side. Uh, At some point, there are lines that you cross in the calendar where you can't backtrack. There's no take backs of like, actually, we're going to change our mind and move our date a couple days or do whatever. Up to a certain point, that's possible. Otherwise, like so much other machinery in terms of marketing spends and and working with PR and, and doing all these other events and all this kind of stuff to make it as successful as possible, that trying to move those dates basically would be like, yes, we can move the date, but it basically means you're resetting all of that back to zero. And you may not actually have the budget to do that again. So that has a very dramatic impact on the potential success of the game. On the indie side, I think it's a lot more flexible in that sense. Obviously, our expectations are way, way smaller. And so is our flexibility. We're a lot more agile. We're able to kind of set. We don't have the same uh, external pressures. There's no stakeholders. There's no shareholders. There's, you know, we tend to set a lot of our own agenda and a lot of our own timing. Now, again, as you get closer to launch, there are still other uh, factors that may come into play. But for the most part, you're able to adjust those things a lot easier. So it is much easier to say, no, we're actually going to stick to our values when it comes to these sorts of things. But it's still, it still can be really easy to slide into some of that. Oh, it's just a meeting on a weekend. It's just an evening. It's a, you know, we have this event that's coming up on Steam and we really want to be a part of it. And it would be a really big thing for the game to be able to get that kind of exposure. So let's just, you know, we'll work a little bit harder to try to make that happen. So it's easy for teams to also fall into that. And I think the key thing there in both cases is just being really cognizant of none of these come for free. Um, There is a cost that you're paying. Often it's a people cost. And you need to be very, very aware of that and very conscious when you're making those decisions. And frankly, it needs to be a very permissive kind of thing. Like people need to be on board with being able to do that in the first place. And second, I think it also needs to be really like, this is an exception, not the rule. So when you, if you need to do something like that, then yeah, I mean, everyone is, you know, everyone wants the game to be successful. So I think there is that kind of aspect of coming together to solve a problem, which is very powerful and actually very intoxicating as well um, for, for a lot of team members. And I think that's, that's where, from a leadership perspective, it's recognizing those kinds of signs and being able to step in and say, actually, we're going to miss this one or we're, it's, we're not going to do this thing. We're going to do this other thing. We're not going to do the gameplay trailer. We're going to do the teaser trailer, even though the gameplay trailer would be way better because, you know, lots of reasons there. But this is what I think we could actually achieve with the team and the time that we have in a reasonable way. And having to make those kinds of decisions and seeing the impact of those things, 
I think that's the best way for anyone to learn and to understand that. I think back in my time, the some of the more challenging games that I've worked on and productions that I've worked on is also the ones where you learn the most because you, you make painful mistakes and you vow like not to try to repeat those things. Um, and those are very, very powerful learning mechanisms. And that's one of the, you know, the magical aspects of games is the, unlike TV or film, they actually have the ability to also implant a, a player in those circumstances and have to live through experience, which is very different. And I think it can, when done well, I think it can sort of impact individuals um, in a much more powerful way than, than traditional linear media. Yeah, I think at games at their best are empathy generators. I mean, they they allow us to uh, connect in all these ways that passive viewing and things just can't really hit in the same way. Absolutely. And especially in the demo, uh, what stuck out to me was when they were talking about the main character that they wanted for this game. And so some of the production team are pushing the team to craft a main character who will be a a swing for the fences in terms of their identity and deviation from the the sort of Nathan Drake archetype present in many games. Additionally, the character Felix uses they, them pronouns, which we see more commonly in the indie space um, these days, but it's still kind of a rarity in a lot of uh, blockbuster titles. Do you think that there are limitations in this AAA space to push the envelope forward for authentic representation with characters? Yeah, I think so. And I mean, given my own history at Bioware, I think has been actually really transformative in that sense. Not even, it's not like a purposeful conversation that we have of like, okay, we need to tick these boxes. Um, It is something that the team is genuine about trying to improve. And I think that's something that, you know, I've certainly taken forward with Double Blit and even in the in-game team representation um, in the game. As much as it's about AAA, it's also this kind of idealistic, hopefully not idealistic in the future, but certainly today, a more idealistic representation of what a team could be. You have majority characters that are actually women, or at least because we have uh, animals there female presenting characters. Felix is a non-binary character and we have other characters as well. And I think that is something that you're absolutely right. Like it's much more common to see in the indie space. I think there are some real challenges. I do see like a lot of, um, even in in my time when I was at, uh, as part of Bioware uh, with Electronic Arts, there is a lot of good happening there. Uh, but again, like if, if a... Dragon Age or Mass Effect team, which is a couple hundred people, is a big ship to turn. EA, which is several thousand people, or Ubisoft, or whatever the case is, like these are these are massive organizations, and it's it's slow to build that momentum up. But absolutely, like there are hundreds of people at these organizations trying to make this change happen, and slowly chipping away at it. It is happening, but it is slow. But certainly for us, it's it's one of the things that I, I definitely want to make sure that we touch on in the game you know representation in all aspects is actually a critical part of both on the game development side but also coming back to the player experience and what they can get out of it it's very important for players to not only see themselves as being able to relate to the characters and seeing themselves and identifying with what's happening but also like aspirationally being able to 
project themselves and say, you know, actually, this is something that maybe I want to do with my life or my career. And maybe there is a path here. I didn't think that that was possible, perhaps. And for me, like, that's ultimately everything about the game studio and what we're trying to build with Game Director Story being one, but everything that we do, my hope and, and the vision for the studio is that all of our games touch on that in some way. Like you, you walk away from the game either having grown a little bit as a person or learned something, or you know, in some senses, maybe just feeling good about it. I kind of go back to my time as a kid of playing Nintendo games, or even these days, like I, I don't remember a single time that I've stopped, like when I finished playing a Nintendo game that I didn't feel happier than when I started. And there's just something magical about that type of an experience. And, you know, aspirationally, that's what I'd love to kind of walk away from. Even if it's like 10 people end up playing this game in the end, if it can touch them in that way, I think that's a really important part. And it's, for me, it feels like it's a small contribution towards that larger conversation of, yeah, this is, you know, there's no reason why this shouldn't be what a AAA team should look like and, and have better representation from women and from all underrepresented groups. Absolutely. Do you think that as you've been working at Double you've kind of begun to see the environment that you were looking for more so from the indie space rather than when you were kind of in these big budget um, spaces with all these different people's whose hands were on the project and everything. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously it's a work in progress. We're very early days. We haven't got our first game out the door yet. So maybe it's a better question to ask me, you know, a year after we shipped Game Director Story or something. But, you know, so far it's been great. Uh, I've been able to engage with some amazing people, both as part of um, Game Director Story and some of the other things that we're working on. And I also do, um, I consult with a bunch of other indie studios as well. But just being able to feel like I, I can take that experience from before and help to contribute to other indies being more successful. That is a huge thing for me at a personal level that makes it all worthwhile. And then the other part is, you know, it's much easier, as I mentioned, Double Blit is a very tiny little boat compared to a really big ship like that. So it's much easier for, for me to kind of be able to set the tone for what that looks like and what's, you know, what we want the team to look like and the kinds of games that we want to make and the message that we want to get out and then be able to almost like not immediately, but be able to execute on that and not have to balance that against a, a PL, a, a profit and loss statement of like, well, but this is what we think, you know, this is going to impact our bottom line in some way. Again, very good reasons why that is also important um, not to take that away, but I think, you know, we have a lot more flexibility on the indie space. And certainly in terms of being able to set up my own studio, like hugely privileged position to be able to do that even in the first place. But also the fact that, you know, wanting to collaborate with other developers that think along the same way and wanting to tell more of these kinds of stories, I think has been uh, incredibly rewarding, at least so far. So That's fantastic. And I think that, uh, you know, when the full game ships, I think that it'll be great for a lot of people to play it. But even just playing the demo, I think if we had more people playing the demo, it would serve to make people more understanding of everything that goes into these games. And maybe people can be a little nicer online and a bit more understanding 
of the human beings that are creating these experiences. That'd be fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Fernando, thank you so much for taking the time out for today. Is there anything else that you'd like to say about uh, Double Blit? Uh, Where can we follow your work and uh, the game? Oh, yeah, thanks. You know, we can find us at doubleblit.com. Uh, the website has links to the games that we're working on. And then Game Director Story is available as a free demo on Steam. If you just look for that there, that'd be great. When you play the game, actually, we have a, a little feedback button. Uh, we'd love to get feedback. It's actually been hugely uh, helpful for us to to collect that information and understand a bit more about our players and the kinds of things that you would like to see in a game like this. So please, if you get the chance, that would be awesome. Um, and we're also on Twitter at uh, DoubleBlit as well. Awesome. Fernando, thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you. Likewise. Thanks so much. My pleasure.